It started out as a test from the Pharisees. Lord Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Not only does he give them the greatest commandment, but he follows it up with the second greatest commandment. We'll look at those today on this edition of Graceful Truth. Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Greetings and welcome to the program. Our time together today takes us to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, the great commandment. So what is the greatest commandment? The setting, the setup, the the plot of the Pharisees, it's all laid out here. And Christ comes to us not only to silence his critics, but to give you and I great hope as we live out our lives for him. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. As you're turning over in Matthew chapter 22, we find ourselves in verse 34 this morning. It seems that when people read this passage and focus on this passage of Scripture, uh, they focus directly on verses 37 and 38, which speak of love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you know anything about our society, we definitely live in a love-dominated society today. You see people speaking about love all over the place, on TV, on ads, on everything. We uh, want to fully understand what Jesus means by love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And immediately people tend to jump right to those verses and kind of talk about love and end up in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. I think this morning I, I want to dig a little deeper underneath these verses so that we understand the context by which we're reading them. And so to do that, we have to remind ourselves of our setting, where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. By this time, it's, it's Passion Week. It's the last week of Christ, and it's Wednesday in our text. It's the Wednesday of Passover week. Friday, Jesus will give up his life on Calvary and be crucified that following Sunday he will be raised from the dead. Here we find Jesus in the temple, and he's been spending time there. He entered the city, and he was hailed as the Messiah, the son of David, the deliverer, and they thought he was going to be the deliverer from the Romans' bondage that were holding the Jews captive there under their rule. They wanted a Messiah that would come and set them free. And they hoped and they envisioned this Messiah to be Christ. And so when he rode in triumphantly on Monday, they hailed him as such. People followed him and they laid down palm branches and all that. And on Tuesday, he went uh, to the temple rather than going to the Roman fort and attacking the Romans, as many thought he would do since he was going to be their deliverer. But he went to the temple a religious site, and he went in and he threw out all the money changers and he threw out all those who were making money off the people desecrating his father's house, which was to be a a house of prayer, not a uh, den of thieves as they made it. And then that night, after he cleansed the temple, he went back out to Bethany and he stayed in the house of where he was staying there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so here we find his disciples, this This next day, he came back into Jerusalem, and he went directly back to the temple, which he just cleaned, and he went in and he thought to start teaching. 
you've got to remember, the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day, were very upset with him at this point. They were ticked off at him basically for three reasons. First of all, he taught what was contrary to their own teachings. They were given the stewardship of the Word of God. They took that stewardship and they, they perverted it. They took the Word of God and to mean something else from what it was written to mean. And they used that perversion to beat down the people, to make themselves look righteous. So he taught something contrary. It wasn't just the external part of your religion that mattered, but it was the heart. And whenever Jesus taught that, it flew right in the face of the religious leaders. And the second reason they didn't like what he was teaching was because, basically, he was more popular than they were. He was much more popular than they were. They took advantage of the people and... um, made the people feel you know, guilty and all those other things. Jesus came along and really rallied the people around him. They, just, they were just naturally drawn to this incredible teacher. And as the religious leaders stepped back and looked at this, they thought, hey, this guy's cutting in on our game here. We don't like this for that reason. And then number three, they saw his incredible power. The religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't argue that he, didn't, that he did these miracles. They knew he did. And that's what really blew them away. And so you remember back earlier in Matthew, they said, oh, we can't dispute the fact that you're doing miracles, but you're doing them by the power of Satan, not by the power of God, which is just ridiculous. And so here's a man who contradicted their teaching. He was taking over their popularity, and he could do basically anything he wanted to do with power and authority. And he was a threat to them. He was a threat to their, their corner of their little religiosity that they had built up around them. And they wanted to eliminate him. They wanted to get rid of him. And how do you eliminate somebody who's so popular? You can't just go and say, okay, we're going to take this guy out. You know, the crowds would have turned on the religious leaders if they tried to do that. So they had to come up with a way. They had to come up with a scheme. And what they thought to do, after they met together and they discussed this, all the religious leaders in Jerusalem there, they thought, well, you know what, we can't take this guy out publicly, but we can basically make him want to go away. And the only reason we can do that is because we can start asking him questions. We can begin to, in the people's minds, have them question his authority, question his ability to understand the Scriptures. They were really looking to publicly discredit Christ. Because they thought if they publicly discredited him with the people or with Rome, either one, then they would come in and do their handiwork. Either the crowds would turn on him or the Roman government would turn on him and they would take him away and haul him away and have him killed. And so they made every attempt to make him look bad. And we see that attempt in chapter 22. Now remember... As they confront him with a series of questions, their underlying motive is to discredit him. They don't want an answer to the question. They want, to, they want to catch him. They want to trap him. And so that's what their goal is. And so we see here that basically he had three basic questions, three groups of people that came to him. And the first one was they came to him and they began to ask him, about the whole parable of the uh, paying taxes to Caesar. And it says there that when they plotted, they wanted to entangle him in his words. And so they thought, okay, you know what? We can basically catch him in a trap here. They knew what they spoke, what he spoke about, 
chapter 21, verse 45 says that, that when he was using these different parables and talked about them in this light, the religious leaders, they understood what he was saying. And so here they come and they try to trap him in these different questions. And the first one was with the uh, the, the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. And as they approached Jesus, they wanted to ask him a question that would get him in trouble with the Romans' authority. And so they asked him whether or not they should pay their taxes to Caesar. And Jesus answered that question in a very unique way. As a matter of fact, he basically turned them away. He said, you don't pay tribute to Caesar, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he pulled out a coin. He said, whose picture is it on it? Remember? Well, give it to him. It's his. Why would you want to keep it? We don't worship idols. That was the whole idea. But he did draw a line at worshiping Caesar. We don't do that, but you can pay him taxes. And so he got out of that one. And they were confounded at his answer. And then the Sadducees came along. And the Sadducees, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a life after this. The Pharisees did. So here you see all these different religious groups coming together against Jesus Christ. It's not very uh, different than what that is today. You see a lot of different religious groups when you stand up for Christ and what his word says that they will kind of join forces against you. That's just what they do. So the Sadducees came with this second question in verse 23, and they wanted to know his view on the resurrection. And they've been probably using this question to trap the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. And every time they would talk about this, the Sadducees would say, well, what if there was a guy who married somebody and uh, then they, they died and they married and married and go on and on and on. And it goes on there. You read it in verses 23 to 33. And they give this really ridiculous story, a bizarre situation. And it says that they, they keep on dying and down at the end there, it says in verse 28, who, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? So her husband's kept dying, and as was the custom, the other brother would marry to, to, to give her children. And so their little story said, well, they all died. Now, in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? And he answers it in such a way that blows their mind once again, saying that in heaven we don't have marriage. Don't you know? And so they tried to get him politically. They tried to get him theologically, with that issue of the resurrection. And now we come to the third question, all right? Two groups have failed. And now we come to the third question, and that's where we find ourselves in this context in verse 34. And we understand that they were trying to trap him. They were trying to test him. They weren't just asking questions. You know, people say, well, it's great to ask questions. Yeah, it is, if you're asking with the right motive. And so sometimes people have the wrong motivation. But here, that's what their case was. They had the wrong motivation in asking Jesus this question. And the way he answered each one of these questions in Mark 12, 34, this is what it says. When this was over, no man dared ask him any more questions. In other words, he answered them in such a way, it just blew their minds. They couldn't believe it. They had nothing else to say. So let's see what happens here as we introduce the the scene here in verse 34. I'll read the text, verse 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, what we see here is rather interesting right from the very beginning. We see that Jesus is really confronted once again. The Pharisees heard, because they weren't there. Remember, they sent their, their, uh, the Sadducees to Jesus the last time. So they heard what happened. And it says, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. He silenced them. That word silence is, a word, is an interesting word. It doesn't mean that he, he just put his hand over his mouth. No, it, it means that he basically gagged them to the point where they were not able to speak. They had nothing more to say. It wasn't a voluntary silencing. They weren't saying, oh, we're not going to say anything more. No. They wanted to say more, but they couldn't. It's used in Mark one twenty-five and of the silencing of a demon. It's also used in Mark 4.39 when he silenced the storm. Or 1 Corinthians 9.9 of the muzzling of the ox. It's an unwilling silencing. They didn't want to be silenced, but that's exactly what he did. He silenced them. Silence the Sadducees. Now remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't, didn't agree. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. All right? And they took the whole Old Testament and they believed in all that. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in anything else. That was it. And so it was interesting when Jesus answered them about the resurrection, he answered them from those five books. And so you see the Pharisees hearing about the Sadducees just being shut down. Now remember, the Sadducees probably have dealt with Pharisees before on the topic of the resurrection. And the Pharisees probably lost. They probably thought, they probably used the same question they used on Jesus to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees just walk away shaking their heads. How are you going to answer that? But Jesus was able to answer it. So when the Pharisees heard that the Sadducees had been silenced, part of them probably was like, yeah. You know, got them. We could never do that. Why didn't we think of that? You know, that's probably what they thought. But the other part thought, ah, now we got to devise another scheme. We got to devise something else. We got to get together. And that's what it says there. It says they gathered together. They were probably upset with the fact that they, Jesus didn't fall into the Sadducees trap, but they were also kind of in their heart partly kind of rejoicing that the fact that at least Jesus believed in the resurrection. He wasn't like the Sadducees. And so it says they gathered together, which is kind of an interesting thing when you, when you stop and you think about prophecy concerning our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because really, just that little word there, the religious leaders gathered together, that means the Pharisees and the Sadducees, probably the scribes, they all gathered together thinking, okay, what is, what's next? What do we do now? And it says in Psalm 2, it says this, In verse 2 of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you see how even this little kind of small little gathering here in Matthew 22 of the Pharisees and the Sadducees against God and against his anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. It really was. In Acts 4.26 it, it, it refers to that verse in Psalm 2. It says, The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. And so you see that Psalm 2 looked 
really forward to the cross, that they would gather against him. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 26, it, it basically looks back to that time when they gathered against him. And so you see a fulfillment of prophecy right there in that place. And so this is the third time they're trying to catch him. The third time they're trying to catch him in his words, to, to paint a scenario where he just won't be able to get out of this one. He's going to tick somebody off. He's going to get the Romans ticked off or, or the people that are so, he's so popular with. Somehow we have to get him discredited in the eyes of the people. And so it says the Pharisees heard that, the, that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. And then look at what it says in verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Now, why did he ask the question? It says to what? To test him, right? To test him. And Jesus uses this illustration, really, as an opportunity to talk about love. A love for God and a love for uh, your neighbor and even a love for yourself. But let's look, first of all, here at this plot that the Pharisees put together. The first test of Jesus by the Pharisees was made through the disciples of the Herodians. It was political in nature. The second one was through the Sadducees, was theological, depending, uh, really pertaining to the, the resurrection. And now the Pharisees are going to test him again in the area of theology. Now, when Jesus answered this crazy question about the resurrection that the Sadducees asked, he showed that even Moses taught the resurrection. That's what he quoted from. He quoted from one of the first five books of the Torah. And they just were silenced, it says. The Sadducees were verbally incapacitated by the Lord. And these guys were not at a loss for words, usually. You know, there were the typical religious people that just like to gab, 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 talk, 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 get all the attention. That's kind of what they were all about. When the Pharisees heard that, they probably thought, hey, okay, we've got to come up with something else. And so they sent one of their lawyers now, that word there is, is really, you could refer to it as a scribe. You know, the, the scribes were the guys that were kind of up in the hills studying the word. They, they were every little letter and every little nuance. They wanted to know everything. They transcribed it. That's what they did. Okay? The scribes were totally focused on the word of God. They didn't want to be around people. They didn't want any of that kind of a thing. They were, they were just kind of more, more focused, more intellectually driven by the text kind of like the Essenes, that's what they were. They were even further out. But the lawyer here, this word lawyer is an interesting word because some people say, well, that word shouldn't even be there. Matthew never uses that word. Well, he's just using a new word, that's all. It doesn't mean that he can't use it, all right? But what it seems to indicate is that this lawyer, whoever he was, was not just an ordinary scribe. He was kind of a scribe among the scribes. He was a top-notch scribe, you might say. And it says there that he came with the motivation to test him, to discredit him. So he was probably a cut above the religious folks of that, that, that group. And uh, maybe in honesty and humility, he was even a cut above them. It seems that he was rather sincere just by the interaction here that we have with this lawyer. But he still, he wants to test Jesus. That's his That's his goal. They sent him out for that purpose. You go, use your wit, use your knowledge of the law, and you ask him a question that he can't answer, and then everybody will sit back and go, ha-ha, got you. And so, verse 36, you see the question asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Notice he addresses him as teacher. 
We've talked about this before. He wasn't probably being malicious here, as some of the other questioners were. Whenever they came up to him, you could almost hear it, you know, in their, oh, teacher, you know, oh, you'd think you know it all. This guy seemed a little more sincere. Maybe he was just a little more uh, with it. I don't know. Maybe his motivations were a little different, but he was still there to test him. That was his goal. And so you, you see here his question, which is the great commandment in the law? Well, what's the law? The law is, is of Moses, the law of Moses. Moses was everything to these people. I mean, everything hinged on the books of Moses, especially for the Sadducees. That's all they accepted. The Pharisees kind of accepted more of the scripture, but still Moses was a supreme figure in scripture in their religion. Moses had spoken with God face to face. He was the humblest man on earth. He had taken the engraved tablets of the law directly from the hand of God, remember? He was also a great deliverer whom God called to lead Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. So he was without peer among the people of Israel. God chose him. The Lord ranked Moses even above the angels. It's in, that little quote is in Romans twelve seven. But from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus understood that. I mean, he's God, right? He understands all this. And he always answered their questions a lot of times. He said, I never came to abolish the law, right? I'm not here to do away with the law and the prophets, but I came to what? Fulfill it. That's what he said in Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He made that very clear. Even though he was the Messiah, God's own son, he wasn't preaching his own little message. He took his message from the word of God. And because he did that, that's what kind of blew them away, how he handled the word of God. And so they really had Moses up on a pedestal. And you have to understand the law was made up of basically 613 different laws. And they were split up. They would split them up into affirmative laws, positive laws, and negative laws. There was 248 affirmative laws. And they said this is one for every part of the human body. They had 365 negative laws. And that was basically one for each day of the year. And so the laws were divided also between the heavy laws and the light laws. Binding and less binding, all this. They had all this minutia that the rabbis put together. And they would spend hours and hours debating the silliest things concerning the law. And so here this lawyer, this scribe, comes to Jesus in front of everybody and asks him, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, I'm sure that they thought, depending on his answer, they didn't anticipate what he would say. But here's what Jesus says. Here's the question answered in verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second, this is the great commandment, the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, without even hesitating, right, he responds and he gave this answer in total accord, not only with the Mosaic law, but even with their ancient Jewish customs based on that. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.